Hey, good afternoon. I'm Devo. And I'm And today on Mind Body Business, we have Katie McGee from she's a U.S. Health Advisors Insurance Expert. And she's going to come on and talk a little bit about the situation going on across the USA, primarily in the healthcare industry. Yeah, so because of Corona, and it was already an overwhelmed healthcare system to begin with, but now because of Corona, it's it's on the verge of collapsing in a lot of areas and, and a lot of elective procedures and normal day-to-day medical issues that you or I might have fall and break my leg. I'm feeling my anxiety and stress level rising right now. Yeah. When you're saying already overwhelmed, I'm a Canadian that transplant here, and the healthcare system has always overwhelmed me. Crazy. So we're going to hopefully, Katie's going to shed a little light on that today. She's going to take us through some of the options. And we're going to learn one of the uh, takeaways for, for me, I know for you and I discussed it earlier in the green room, is that we're going to get some clarity around how you make your electives now. What options do you have had you been unemployed and you formerly had an employer-provided insurance plan, and now what do you do? And some thoughts and ideas around the U.S. healthcare system. How so, so let me ask you then, because it's never made sense to me, and I don't know if that's just me moving here, but as an American, do you understand how it is? I honestly, you and I were joking earlier, I was talking to Katie earlier, it's literally like throwing darts at a dartboard. There are so many options, and it's a manual that's 400 pages thick, and I, I was just like, I don't know if it makes sense this, let me just figure out which one of these makes. I asked my friends, I'm like, which one did you choose? Which one did you choose? And it's expensive. It's really expensive. So how do you budget for that? Yeah, so it's just overwhelming. I don't know how you budget for it, but I know that there, there are options based upon the level of income that you make that are at your disposal. There's also options if you're an employer who has a team that you're paying for insurance through the U.S. marketplace, which is government subsidized in some way, which is Obamacare. Are we gonna be talking about the pros and cons of socialized medicine, like Canada, the UK, any of that? I'm happy, I'm happy to go down that, I'm happy to go down that everybody, channel. Everybody talks bad about it until like stuff like this comes up, and you're yeah. like, wow, it'd be easy to take Yeah. So let's hear what she has to say. I'm going to go ahead and bring her in, and we will introduce her formally. Hey, Katie, how's it going? Are you able to hear us? Yes. Okay, cool. So I don't think you heard any of our conversation in the beginning, but we just wanted to introduce you formally. Thank you for joining Mind Body Business. I'm Diva, obviously you know Lisa. And this is Katie McGee. She's from U.S. Healthcare Advisors. And you're going to come on and talk a little bit about the U.S. healthcare system, current situation. I like the light that's going down your face right now. She's <laughs> going down there. She has a bigger production team than we do, obviously. <laughs> obviously, healthcare messiah. So she's going to come in here and give us some information on the current healthcare situation across the marketplace, the impact that Corona has had on the healthcare system and people who are insured and no longer insured. And you know, just tell us why socialized medicine would be a much better option than what we have, right? <laughs> Put me on the spot with that one. <laughs> that was a lot off the bat. This one. Where do you start? So I think for me, the, the Katie and I met through a business uh, connection group. And one of the things that I was amazed with is your knowledge around the insurance build. So, and then you and I met privately offline to discuss health insurance options for 2020 and um, just your breadth of knowledge around it was amazing. But then as Lisa and I were going through Corona and all the nonsense associated with that, it dawned on us and I hadn't really seen a whole lot of literature on the interwebs about it, but it (laughs) dawned on us that there is an impending crisis looming because there's a boatload of people who have been laid off. I think we're at 33 million people who have applied for unemployment, right? Yeah. A million. And of those 33 million, I venture to guess 50% of those are employed by an employer or were employed mm-hmm. as they were laid off. And they had health care through their employer, which will dry up in doing the math six months now, roughly for most of them. Right. And some of them, if they're lucky, their employer may extend it for um, 18 months. But the reality is it's still going to end, whether it's six months or 18 months, you know. Um, and it's ex- COBRA's extremely expensive, which is what you're speaking about, which is that kind of gap that employers have to, legally they have to offer. 
Um, so it's extremely expensive. So if they were paying, you know, $200 a month, that COBRA option is probably four to $500 a month. So it's short term and it's extremely expensive. And right now with people not working, most families can't afford that. So um, a whole lot of things wrong with that. COBRA is also offered even outside of, of everything happening with Corona. So anytime somebody leaves a job, um, whether it's voluntarily or involuntarily, this COBRA option has to be offered. Again, it's short term and it's, extra, it's usually at least double whatever they were paying while employed. Well, let's stop there for a second. If it's required, why is there so much variance across employers and the provisions around that? Why, is, why did you say some are eligible for 18 months and some are only six? Why is it required that an employer has to pay insurance? Okay, so in North Carolina, there are only two tiers of companies, according to North Carolina, right? So there's small business, which is going to be anything with 50 full-time employees or under. And then there's going to be large corporations, large businesses, which is anything with 50 employees or higher full-time. Well, here's the problem with that is 50 is really not a big number. And there's this weird, what really should be called a middle, mid-sized business, right? But North Carolina doesn't acknowledge that. So here's what happens. Anybody with 50 or less employees is not required to provide insurance. Um, if, of any kind. Anybody with 50 or more is required. So here's what you're having with the people that do have COBRA for whether it's six months or 18 months, and that's just up to the employer themselves what they choose to do, but they have to offer it if they have more than 50. Most companies, if they have more than 50, are going into this large corporation kind of setting. But what about the people that are 20 employees to 50? There's that mid-range that those are the people that aren't being offered anything right now. They, they had something in place. They had a group plan in place, but they've now been let go. Well, since North Carolina doesn't recognize that weird middle section of employees, they are not required to give COBRA. So they've now shut down. They've had to let their employees go, and, but they're not required to provide any kind of temporary insurance in between because they're under 50. But the people that had maybe 10 employees or less, they weren't providing insurance anyway. So those people weren't getting it to begin with, or either they had their own private plan. So those people are kind of, I don't want to say okay, but they already didn't have something in place or they had their own personal plan. Anybody with 50 or more is getting COBRA, but all those people in between 10 and 50 are the ones that are really kind of stuck. They've just lost it. All right, well, let's just break it down in the, in the worst-case scenario to starters. So everybody's COBRA has expired mm -hmm. and they're still unemployed. What options does someone have for insurance? So right now you will have three options. And you have one of which I'm going to kind of break down into multiple tiers because you have to be able to qualify. So the first two easy ones, um, private insurance, which is going to be basically what private means is it is options outside of the marketplace, off the ACA, not part of Obamacare, not through the government. And clarify, marketplace is Obamacare or they're... Okay, right. So three words that everybody thinks mean something different, they all mean exactly the same thing. Obamacare, ACA, marketplace. All three of those are under the same umbrella. It's just three different words for it. So... Anything, private's going to be anything that's not ran through the government. Now, the big difference with private is going to be that they are going to be medically underwritten. So you are going to have to qualify, meaning they can actually decline you. So it's going to be based on your current age and your medical history. Um, similar to life insurance. Um, you know, rates are going to be based on that. Then you have... Uh, as opposed to being based on your income, which is everything through the marketplace is based on your income. So the more you make, the more you pay. Now, the other option outside of the marketplace, and I'm going to say this very um, loosely when I say insurance, because it is legally not insurance, but it's any of the share programs. So you have the Christian share programs, you have the MediShare programs, and basically, if you want to take a word, share is the key word. So what it is, is it's a group of people, and you pay into a big pot every month, 
And if something happens to you during that month, basically a board of directors choose if they want to pay or not. It's, it's a huge gamble. It's like timeshare healthcare. Right, exactly. Which is why it can't legally be called health insurance because they don't guarantee payment for anything. Oh so at that point, a lot of insurance, right? So, so how does that even exist? Why is that even an option? So, and who's standing to profit from that? I'm assuming private insurance is so expensive. I remember getting a quote once, and it would have been nine hundred dollars for my family with four yeah. kids, and I was like, right. "How do I budget for that?" So people are grasping at whatever they can if they can get anything, right? So, correct. So the. You know, the good, bad, and the ugly, right? So the good of the SHARE programs is they're extremely affordable. You can get a, a plan for a family of four for like 150 to 200 bucks. Now, it's great for the annual physical, the immunizations, the little, you know, the cold here or there. What it's not good for is when you have a heart attack or a car accident or there's big unexpected events, the hospitals don't take it because it's not legally insurance, and they know that the plan doesn't have to pay for anything. Now, it might, but it doesn't have to. So that's so it's legally not insurance, but it's extremely affordable per month. But I'll be honest with you, you're better off getting together with a group of your buddies that you at least trust and all of you pulling your money together because then at least you have control over <laughs> what's getting paid for. I, I cannot, sorry, I just cannot fathom being rushed to the hospital and being like, um, I'm having a heart attack. Do you think that maybe you could take, like, I, that this occurs here is still floors me. Like, honestly, it's ridiculous. When, well, I, when, I, when I said it was like a timeshare, it's true. I, when I was married many, many years ago, we fell prey to one of those timeshare gigs. And um, <laughs> I remember always trying to book the timeshare. And it was always like every single month was rented out. You couldn't rent it. But you had to plan it for like four years in advance to reserve that before. So it's kind of like there was never any availability for anything that I ever actually wanted to do. So same. Yeah. yeah, it's not like you plan for a heart attack or you plan yeah. for anything colossal to happen. Well, and here's what happens if you decide. So then, okay, well, in that case, I'll just self-insure. Well, here's the problem with self-insuring is, to your point, you have a heart attack, you go to the hospital, and they say, okay, where's your insurance card? And you're like, I don't have one. All they have to do legally is stabilize you, and then they'll ship you right back out to a secondary facility. And you will not get the care you need there. Okay, this is not reassuring at all. My stress and anxiety, it continues to climb. <laughs> so, like, so people that, that so self-insuring is, is great for someone that, okay, actually, I'll tell you who it's great for. The people who are really into holistic healing and are like, I have, I'm not going to go to do modern medicine. I'm not going to do that anyway. Okay, you know, fine. Um, but honestly, any normal, any family, you need something. And even something supplemental is better than nothing. Because at least supplemental will get you into the hospital and get you room and board. So you're not just shipped back out. Okay, so we're, the conversation is shifting away from insurance for a bit. So l let's just pretend that I get hurt really badly and I don't have insurance. Okay. I go to the hospital. Because I think growing up didn't have any insurance at all. We didn't, my, my father was, when, when we got hurt, we had to tough it out. percentage of Americans that don't have insurance. It's very large. There's a lot. And it's, and it's typically tied to socioeconomic status. It's not necessarily just holistic people. It's yeah. Correct. But it's also, and you and I have talked about this before, and we're going to go in there. There's a lot of people who don't even know that some of the stuff that you sell or that you offer is even available. But Correct. I know you're jumping to talk about that. Before you get in there, <laughs> I'm hurt. I don't have insurance. I go to the hospital. They find out that I don't have insurance. They're legally obligated to care for me, right, at that They're point. They're obligated to stabilize you, and that's it. Okay, so they stabilize me. That's still multi-thousands of dollars to stabilize. Yeah, so that just gets thrown back onto the taxpayers, or is that just dissolved? What happens with that? Is it thrown back into premiums for paying people? Where does that go? So here is how marketplace premiums work. So when it comes, when I said earlier, like the more you make, the more you pay, to that point. So basically with the marketplace, if you're going to have a marketplace plan, 
they legally cannot medically underwrite. They can't ask you a single medical question. They can't discriminate based on pre-existing conditions or anything, which is great. But the problem with that then becomes the only thing they have to base your premium on is your income. So if you are a high income earner, and according to the government, high income is 60,000 plus, just FYI, which for most people is not a lot living in, in this country anymore. So they base it on that. So for every basically like it's 10-ish thousand that you make over 60, you're now increasing in the bracket of what you're going to pay per month. It's also based on the number of people living in your household and the number of people bringing income into your household. So all that aside, to answer your question, you go in, you get stabilized, and there's a bill that you're not going to pay, right? And they really have no way to make you pay it. They're sending it to the ACA, and the ACA is going to be responsible to pay it. Well, the ACA is going to get their money from somewhere, and that's going to be the high income earners' monthly premiums that they've tacked on all the extra dollars to make up for the people who don't have it. Okay, so one thing I'm noticing as you're explaining things, you're giving some clarity, and then there's always a but in it. So I don't want to I don't want to make the marketplace sound like it's a bad thing. It's not because there there should never be a person that can't get insurance because they have a pre-existing condition. That's that's unfair. It's unethical. So I don't want to make the marketplace sound like it's bad. So that's why I always start with there's a place and time for the marketplace and there's a perfect person that should have a marketplace plan. It is someone with a pre-existing condition. Um, it is a um, lower income earner that needs to have a plan that's 50 bucks a month, right? So there is a place for the marketplace for, for the right person. And, and so I don't want to make it sound like I'm bashing the marketplace, but again, for the high income earners, wow. that's where the, the high income earners are, are who really should be looking for another option because they're just getting, they're just getting charged more because of their income. Okay, so going back to the, my question, though. So, He's still in the hospital where you should Well, no, I've, I've been expelled. I'm sitting on the street corner somewhere. <laughs> but I'm stable. You're stable. I'm not going to eat for another, another month. But Okay, so that money is thrown back at the, the high-income insurers. Insured. Yes. How does a system like that even sustain itself? It doesn't. It's going, it's not going to make it. The fact that it's made it this far is, is incredible to me. So it used to be when my parents had insurance, well, they still have insurance, but when I was a kid and was on my parents' insurance, I remember it was you paid your monthly premium and like everything was covered, whether it was a sick visit, an accident, you know, you went to get your annual physical, you paid a monthly premium and everything was covered. That's just how it used to be. So the that's not sustainable either, to be honest. So they switched over to kind of the Obamacare um, style that we have now years ago. And as you've, at first it seemed great, right? Because ACA literally standing for, you know, the Affordable Care Act. So uh, again, making sure everyone has health care because they should is what it was designed to do. But what it does is it puts everything back in the government's pot. Well, the government has to find some way to pay for it. So how do they do that? So it, it's it's not sustainable. Now, what is the answer to that? I'm actually I'm glad that that's not my job to figure out. But but there this is not going to be able to continue to answer your question. It's not sustainable. Universal health care? I don't know if that's the answer either because that has its also its own. What I would really personally like to see is something between a universal healthcare system and what we have. There's got to be like a happy middle ground, but I don't know how to get there. So, <laughs> so I, I don't, the, I don't think that we expected you, but a conversation around it is, is probably worth having just from general lay perspectives like ours. I, I know absolutely zilch about the U.S. healthcare system. I know zero about how insurance works only yeah and so the whole point of this call is to shed some light on that and so that people understand options and yeah. but before we kind of get into the option space 
So you, the U.S. healthcare system is the most expensive healthcare system in the world. We spend more money than any other wealthy country. And this is, you know, we're not talking third world situation. Sure. But we also have the most unhealthy people on the planet. Yes. So do you have any thoughts around why that there's a direct correlation between the two of those? Why don't the two match up? You know, um, <laughs> the, I think that our not just government, but also the economy, and the U.S. in general is really based around the dollar, where, um, and the individual dollar. So everybody has their household, right, and what they make in their household, it's all very private. Everybody is just concerned about themselves and their money and their household and their family. So that's how our healthcare system is. You buy a plan or you pick a plan from your company, you know, whatever that situation is, and that's it. It's yours to deal with. But in other countries, it's one big umbrella. And everybody shares it and everybody contributes to it. Therefore, everybody gets it, gets the habit. The problem with that is, um, is you have the standard of care tends to be lower because they do have to care for everybody under that umbrella. So, the, the standard of care and, and how readily available it is, is actually much lower. So if you get sick today and you call, you're like, hey, I need to run over and, and get checked and, you know, do I have strep? Do I have a flu? What's going on? It could take you two weeks to get an appointment where you could call up a doctor here right now and have an appointment in two hours. But again, it's going to be more expensive to do that, you know, so. Let me interject there if I can. So. By that standard that you just explained, that would mean that we would have the best healthcare system because, because we're not socialized and not everyone has access to it. But go back to the data. The data doesn't match that logic. We have the w most unhealthy citizens of any wealthy country on the planet, the highest obesity rates, highest cancer rates. We also have one of the highest malpractice lawsuit rates of any yep. developed country on the, in the world. So if a logic of having privatized medicine was, had more efficacy, we, all of those numbers would match that, but they're not even close. I don't think as a country as a whole that we value um, health and, and wellness and fitness as, as a whole. And I don't think that has anything to do with health insurance. I just think that that's an American culture problem. Mm. So other countries are, are extremely invested in being active mentally and physically. They take time. It's, it, that's part of their culture. It, unfortunately, it's just not part of our culture as Americans. We don't value, we don't value that as we should. So I don't think that our um, obesity and our health issues in this country directly correlate with health insurance, except to say that the people who can't afford health insurance and don't have it, don't go get checked. So that would be the only correlation I would say is that the people that can't afford it, because it's not under one big umbrella taking care of everybody, the people that can't afford it don't go to the doctor because they can't afford to go to the doctor. They don't have a plan in place to, to utilize. But as, as far as the health itself, I, I think that's a cultural problem, not a health insurance problem. Totally agree. It's our gluttonous lifestyle, and we're treating ourselves to all these things without realizing what it means. And we many times of being in another country, thinking that I'm doing really well hiking a mountain, and a 70 year old blasts past me. Yeah. And they're eating healthy, they're living their lifestyle, everything, and it's reflected throughout the country. My parents spent a month in China and came back changed people. Like. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah I, I think that's more of a cultural issue. So if someone, uh, if someone doesn't have insurance, is it, is it true that they're penalized? They, they're fined for that now? Is that, that, it? that used to be the case, yes. It is no longer the case. So um, the one is a very... Tell me because I just got, I got penalized. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you didn't have... Oh. You should not have been penalized since 2008. 2018 should have been the last year that you were penalized for it, unless you're unless you're back paying. Um, but 2000, the the 
one of the things that, you know, not to get into a political conversation, but one of the things that Trump did do when he got into office is he got rid of that saying that it's unconstitutional to make somebody have some kind of plan and then penalize them for not having it. So that was eliminated at the end of 2018. So since 2019, if you have it, um, or whether you don't, or it used to be if you had a private plan, you were, do you have it, but it wasn't their plan, so you'd still be penalized. So now you can have it, not have it, or have private and not be penalized regardless. So the money that is accepted from donations from people who don't have insurance, where was that money being poured into? Where, where does that money go? The ACA. It was called the fair share penalty tax. And it was just given directly to the ACA again to help pay all those bills that weren't being paid. And those bills not being paid are the same reason that here in North Carolina, all of those doctors and hospitals were pulling out of Blue Cross and Blue Shield because Blue Cross and Blue Shield was not paying premiums in, a, in what they consider a timely fashion. Um, and that's why a lot of them were pulling out of, and not just Blue Cross Blue Shield. I mean, in Georgia, it was um, Aetna and, you know, d different across the country, different companies. But they weren't being paid in a timely fashion because they were so backed up in the marketplace. Okay, so this is so eye-opening. I'm not really sure how someone navigates through this without someone that is an expert. They call Katie. I know. Yeah. Honestly. It's really eye-opening. It is, and it's, uh, that's a segue to my next question is, so you talked about marketplace, you talked about timeshare healthcare, you <laughs> talked about... I'm going to start calling it that. That's <laughs> what it sounds like when you're describing it to me. So, so you have timeshare, you have marketplace, and then you have uh, private insurance, yeah. and then what, what is Medicare, Medicaid? What's the difference between those two? That's for lower, lower income. How is that different from marketplace? So they're actually both Medicare and Medicaid are um, sections of the marketplace. They're both ran through the marketplace. Medicaid is for um, elderly, so which 65 is not old as far as I'm concerned at this point, but 65 and up can get Medicaid. And it basically is... Um, it's going to be the same typical type plans, except they're more focused towards cancer, heart attack, stroke, these kinds of uh, blood pressures, diabetes, things that we experience more in our older age. Uh, and it's going to be more affordable because these people are retired. So that's Medicaid. Then you have Medicare. I'm sorry, I said that backwards. That's Medicare. Then you have Medicaid, which is for the low income, which low income means between you make $1 a year to 30000 anything in that little bracket. And you've had to go to school for 22 years to learn this, right? Yeah, right? <laughs> Does it sound like it? <laughs> so all joking aside, honestly, truthfully, it's, it is so confusing. It's a lot. For most people that I've ever spoken to, they don't have the slightest idea. I, again, I do remember every October-ish, I think it was, we'd get these 400-page packets sent home to us. We had to go in and make our annual selections. And, and you have one, one and a half months. And HMOs and, and honestly, the writing in it, there's so many different options. I can never actually make sense of any of it. So all of that, and I haven't been in the corporate workforce for years. So all of that is still relevant. Correct. How, how does someone decide between all those options? If you could, if you have 30 seconds to tell me, do I pick an HMO, a PPO, or all the other 26 options that were in there? How does someone decide what's the best for them? Very easy. PPO is going to be your most comprehensive and give the most control to the client. Then you have an EPO or a POS, and both of those, they're different names for pretty much the same thing. They're, they're a middle ground between a full control of the policy and no control of the policy. So PPO is full control to the client, HMO is no control to the client, and then EPO and POS are right in the middle. Are you aware so, of these? Yeah, no, my know. eyes may be glazing over because I'm like, it's so much. What I what I would you honestly haven't worked in the corporate space for years, so no, 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 I'm not in the U.S. I kid you not. And that you can't see certain, you can only see certain doctors like yeah. that. That here's a that's list an of HMO. Doctors. Okay, here's a list of doctors you can see. So and on the other end, I have friends that are doctors, and they're like, well, we we bill for this, but we're not going to get paid the full amount that we're billing for the insurance and all right. of that too, which is... So, hang on one second, Katie. So when you're, 
you, when, you, when, yeah. you're, when you're growing up for, with Canadian insurance and you had family insurance. Yeah, I was in Ontario, so yeah, okay. And then, but everybody had, everybody had OHIP in Canada. So if there's just one healthcare system, it's. No, for, for each province. I got it, okay. So I would have OHIP in Ontario. And, and that's, I would call my doctor up and, and go see my doctor. Um, I didn't have to pay to have a baby and all of those things. Yep. But what Katie says is true. Like, you're put on a longer waiting list. So I don't know if it's like a culling that they're like, well, we'll fix this. We'll put you on a waiting <laughs> list and we'll kind of like, <laughs> never heard of it, which is a terrible thing. So that can, that can happen. That's why a lot of people like from Canada get and that's, done. If they need something fast, they'll get it done here. Or like a, a healthcare Wait, hang on. So that's allowed to do so many of those, uh, whatever that procedure was, they were capped. This could have changed it. Yeah. But they were capped at this many procedures that they could do. And that's government. That's all government run. That's the Canadian government processing. Same and with the booze, the alcohol, everything. They were all against that. So, sorry, I have to go off topic for a second. So, there's across the globe, there are, all, there are multiple levels of insurance. There's social medicine, which is Canadian, Sweden, all those northern countries. Europe, Europe, because they're a European bloc now, they have their own mandated insurance as well within each of the, with the exception of now England, because they're leaving. Is that, I don't even know if that's happening anymore. Is that correct? So, is that, yeah, big surprise. But you can see why most people are confused. There's, there's just so many different levels of insurance. And if you're a multinational like you, who grew up experiencing one thing, and then you come into another country, and it's completely different from what you ever grew up with. Like, yeah, right. No, well, and within our own system, so to your point with the POS, um, you know, PPO, HMO, the normal non-health insurance agent doesn't know what any of that means. And you can go online and you can Google it and whatnot, but the reality is. I hate to say it, but they almost don't want you to know because they give you a, they give you this big 400-page packet in middle to late October, and you have from November 1st till December 15th, a month and a half, to do all of your research and make a decision. Okay, Along with, who's going to do that? Who's going to do that? Nobody. Nobody. So you pick whichever one. You, you pick it based on price is what people end up doing because they don't I, I picked it based upon who had the prettiest graphs. Literally, like oh, right. uh, this one has the best looking graph. They seem to be all leveled and balanced. I'm growing with that one. <laughs> <There are departments. laughs> who has the best marketing? Is who got my right. Who's got the prettiest brochure? I mean, right? So, and that's what ends up happening is because people don't have time. And even if they have time, they don't want to, or they just don't understand it. It's so much. So, it, most people come down to what's the monthly premium? And, and for most people, they don't pick the HMO. Most of, They pick something in the middle. Right, which is okay, but maybe if you if they understood and knew, then maybe they would have picked a different option. But no company gives maybe more than a 10, 15 minute quick little webinar on, you know, HR will do a, a quick overview of the options and that's that. Because the reality is HR doesn't know either. Yeah, I, I remember actually they sent us out a, uh, it was like a, a a Venn diagram that you'd have to mm -hmm. put on your headphones and you'd watch it and you'd click start and it would take you to these little arrows and it was like, if you're this, click yes. If you're not, and it was like an hour long and about 12 minutes in, it was like hitting the keyboard. Right. <laughs> because <laughs> it's like how we select for wine. You just look yeah. at the label. That looks really pretty. Let's go with that one. They don't, they're all they're doing is reading the brochure. They don't know any more than you know. Okay, so how the hell do you make sense of it? Honestly, how do you make sense of any of it? You, what you should do is, is find an agent that does not mind simply advising and, and ask the question. Whether you find, I mean, try to find somebody that has been recommended or you know, because there's, I hate to say it, but plenty of people out there in sales that are just selling to sell, right? It's but like everyone's selling real estate too, right? Right. <laughs> exactly. License, but... Exactly. But most advisors, because it will literally take two to three minutes of their time to just answer a simple question. The amount of people that contact me through Facebook that found me on, you know, one of the groups or whatever, that will just message me a simple question. It takes me five seconds to answer that question. 
So, and advice is, there's no advisor out there, I shouldn't say none, but most advisors out there to do what I do are not going to charge any amount of money to answer a simple question like that. So, honestly, find somebody that knows somebody that has actual advice, that has real information, because there is so much out there on Google that is false. <laughs> so, uh, otherwise, you just have to do your own research. So while, while you guys were talking about that, I just quickly Googled. I wanted to just see, as of um, last year, there were 27.9 million non-elderly people. I don't know how you count all that data, but <laughs> that were uninsured. How, how do they even gather that data to begin with? Honestly, I have no idea. Unless they go... They're just so they deducting the from the number of insured versus... I mean, because well, they, the, they know the general census population. How's that even calculated? Right. So I would say probably what they do is they take the population number as a whole, and then they go to all the different companies and collect how many insured they have and subtract. Hmm. So it's a guess. Do you have any idea? And don't, I'm not going to hold you to this if you don't know the answer, but do you have any idea which has the greater cost, the cost of 27.9 million people being uninsured or the cost of insurance in of itself? So, I don't know the real answer to that, but I'll tell you what my opinion is, is I would say the uninsured people actually end up costing more as a whole. So the majority of people, so my company did some, some analysis, and only 2% of people really ever have a catastrophic event happen in their life, meaning that they have medical bills that exceed $80,000. So that's a really low number. Yeah. Now, the 2% that do, that's a lot of money when you put it all together. But most people don't have a major catastrophic event in their life that doesn't lead to death, that they survive and continue living from. Now, 5% of people will have an accident that's going to be somewhere between, or, or a disease that's going to cost somewhere between twenty and 80000 Right, and then everybody else generally, the most they do is is twenty thousand or less. So most people don't have a big catastrophic event happen in their life. Not on wood, thank goodness, right? So, but the problem is the people that do that have insurance that the two percent that have a massive heart attack that need bypass surgery and heart replacement and ongoing treatments for the rest of their life that's hundreds and thousands of dollars. The ones that have insurance every year, they'll hit their deductible, and then they have 100% coverage from the insurance company or 20 or 80% coverage from the – they'll not have a big chunk paid by the insurance company. Therefore, none of these bills are left out there unpaid or going back to the government, mm -hmm. right? But the people that don't have insurance, for whatever reason, that do have some kind of – or even if it's not catastrophic, let's say it's in that, that twenty dollars to $50,000 range, right? Um, you know, some kind of big accident that requires surgery, but they recover and, and then have no ongoing issues, whatever it may be. That $50,000, $100,000, whatever that bill is, is not paid and is just going right back to the government. Well, the government's already paying – whatever debt they're paying off to wherever they're paying it. Now we're just adding to it with that. Where had all those people had insurance, even if it's a universal style or even if it's Medicaid, whatever it may be, that's money that the insurance company is taking off of the government's plate and they're paying the way they should. I mean, this is what insurance companies exist for. So I, so I don't know the, the real answer to that, but my opinion would be that, if all those people had insurance, it would end up, us as a country, lowering the debt. And that's because that would be, all of that cost would be poured back on the people who are actually insured because that goes to the ACA and then back into the policy itself, right? Right. And if more people went towards, um, like, the private insurance sector, so if there's a bill, so if you're on the ACA and you don't pay a bill, it goes back to the ACA. Right, it goes back to the government. But if you have private insurance and you don't pay a bill, it comes back to you, not the government. So people that have private insurance generally, because it's their responsibility, is going to go towards you know their their I can't say credit because medical bills can't go towards your credit, but um, towards your household and your household income and, and stability. 
they're more likely to pay, right? Because there's nobody for it to fall back on. So, yeah, but that, there's, I don't know the number, but there's billions of that, billions of those dollars that actually go unpaid every year. So that money. Oh, uh, well, there's, yeah, there's always billions of dollars that go unpaid. The other thing that I think a lot of people don't know, kind of side note just to that, is negotiate your bill. Even if you have insurance, negotiate your bill. Mainly right now with everything going on and a lot of people not having um, an income coming in, there are so many medical bills that are going unpaid right now that if you call up the doctor and are like, hey, look, I don't have 1000 but I can give you 500 right now, a lot of them are going to take it because there are so many bills not being paid. So negotiate, negotiate, insurance so, or not. So when you're yeah, – I've heard that before too. So your so your taxes or your um, insurance that's all just one big national tax. That's how you you pay for it. So every year there's a, a tax fee. Is that correct? Is that how Canadian okay, insurance so, works? So as you were saying, like there's pros and cons. There's the you know your services expedited or not. There's extra taxes. Like honestly, one of the reasons we moved down here is we were being taxed so much as well. So we so you can't. It's, you can't pretend that it's all perfect and shiny because there's there's a lot of taxes there as there are here. So, so you're technically still paying for you're it. Still paying. You for just it. it's not called medical insurance, just the taxation. I, okay, I understand. Um, I, I, so, I, yeah. So there's not going to be like a, a million people moving to Canada over the yeah. right now. Instead, clarify that the taxes are cold. So a couple of questions just. Continuing on that discussion, I know several people just in my small circle in North Carolina that have left and gone across the border to have insurance, both in Canada and Mexico, because they didn't want to, they don't have insurance here, or they didn't qualify for insurance here, and they didn't want to pay your super premiums that you talked about. Right. So if you have a, uh, if you have a universal healthcare system or a social healthcare system like Canada, how are they sneaking across the border? Exactly. How am I getting into the you system to... Am I paying just cold hard cash? And that's so. How does that even work? Because I've never actually asked my friend who goes down to Mexico every year for dental and other mm -hmm. work. That's extremely common. Yeah, it's it's more common than I ever had an idea it was, right? Yeah. I mean, I have clients. So how does an American break into the social system if there's such a rigorous structure to it? So. Am I, am I making sense in that question? Like how. Yeah. You'd have to have you'd have to have either dual citizenship or you'd have to have a spouse that has dual citizenship and you can jump on their plan in another country or you're just paying under the table and having services done with cash. Because paying in cash in a different country a lot of times is so much more affordable than paying for it here, even with insurance. Now, I can't speak to the quality of care up or down. Right there. I don't know that I'd recommend it, but. Honestly, I never thought that I'd be doing a podcast on insurance. No offense, you're a nice woman, but it's really not the most scintillating <laughs> subject. But, it's, it's uh, so but as a. Yeah, but as a paying, tax-paying adult who's a father of children, like, it's a serious situation that I never realized how expensive it actually is in terms of – I was reading a story, and I don't even know if this is true or not, but I was reading a story the other day that the U.S. healthcare system – and this may not be factually true, but there's a senator from Minneapolis who is harping on it right now, or Minnesota, who's harping on this right now, that hospitals – who classify corona patients and had to be put on a defibrillator versus you who just had corona and but you survived, et cetera, or me who just was there for a common flu, are paid are paid back six, seven, twelve, fifteen times in a insurance back to them than just a regular person like myself. Now, I know we're going down a rabbit hole that you're probably not allowed to answer, but holy fuck, if that's true, do you ha no one's talking about this. I'm sorry. I've not heard a single person talk about this. If that's actually true, that's a holy fuck moment, and the implications for that are out of this world. So I don't know if it is factual or not, but 
I've also heard, not just out of Minneapolis, but in general, a lot of states are rewarded for diagnosing corona patients. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. They're given right. medical paybacks. Right. So if your insurance policy, let's hear something. Okay, no, we have to continue. Podcast. I know. This is another podcast. In <laughs> Crazy, right? So, Katie, no, truthfully, this is insane to me to think about. So, if you go to the hospital and you die, and it's just from like a septic wound to your knee, the insurance has a policy on you because they cared for you. And their insurance carrier pays them back X number of dollars for your death. However, if I was a patient and I died in their care on a fibrillator, whatever they're called, the oxygen things, they're not called fibrillators, are they? That's what you pump someone's heart. Yeah. You have not been watching Grey's Anatomy at all. They're paid back from their insured, from their policy on that, on me, like six times over that amount. Why? So here's what happened when... COVID-19 first started and people, we went into the pandemic and started being quarantined. Hospitals didn't want to diagnose it because it made them look bad or it made the state look bad or it made the numbers look bad. Well, then they got in trouble for not reporting it. Well, they're like, well, we're not, why would we report it if it looks bad on us? So then governments were like, well, if you'll report it, we'll reward you for reporting it. So it's like this catch-22 cycle of just, well, we don't want to look bad, so we're not going to do it unless you give us some kind of benefit to do it. And that's, my understanding is that's where that reward system started coming from. Why is there a reward system for tallying a death count in the first place? Oh, well, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> the things that we get, get rewarded in this country for number's sake is insane. And that not just in healthcare, but in general, things that get rewarded just so that the numbers look nice. You know. Another podcast. We've got a couple more podcasts we need to do. Right. I mean, that you could use that for universities and colleges. You could. I mean, there's just that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> but should we get out of that rabbit hole? Yeah, we should. Okay. Okay. So starting kind of from the beginning, and you kind of mentioned all these things and people that will be not supported by their employers. So what direction do they go in? Because I don't want to be the person that ends up in the hospital and I've, I've just kind of blatantly signed something because I could say I have insurance, but now I'm getting wheeled out into the street in the middle of traffic because I didn't have the coverage that. So I would, I would, as many people as possible that can afford to do so, I highly recommend staying away from any of the SHARE programs, exactly for the reasons we already talked about. It's just a huge gamble for the money that you're paying, right? So the two options that you're going to have when COBRA ends, or you can even do it before. If your COBRA is really expensive, you can you can end COBRA before the six month or the 18 months. What, what does COBRA stand for? COBRA, um, I don't know what the exact an acronym stands for, but COBRA is that, that short-term option that the companies have to give you when they lay you off or you leave to mm -hmm. get you till you get something else. So that's the one that you're talking about right now, that people have about six months' worth of insurance before it ends. Yeah. Um, so. Can I, and I just want to interrupt for a second. What you're explaining here, too, like people have already lost their jobs, and then they're given this, like, okay, you've got to figure this out. Like, that in itself is over. You're already in an overwhelming situation. Yeah. You're adding that to it, too. Right. So the... In order to enroll in a marketplace plan outside of what's called open enrollment, that's that November 1st till December 15th deadline to make a decision for the next year. Outside of that little month and a half window, you can get a marketplace plan if you qualify for special enrollment. What that is, is that's marriage, death, birth of a child, or loss of insurance. So, all these people that have been given this short-term option, whether it's six months or 18 months or anywhere in between this COBRA, um, because they have been laid off or, or fired or whatever the situation may be, at the end of that term, you will qualify for special enrollment because your insurance will be ended. You will be losing coverage. So all of those people can try to qualify for a marketplace plan. Here's the, you know, the, the, the good, bad news, right? You don't have an income right now. You're losing insurance. 
So you're going to get a really steep government subsidy because you're probably going to fall into that bracket of, well, this year I'm only going to make between $1 and $30,000. So you're probably going to get a really good subsidy right now. So for those individuals that would qualify, I would recommend going to the marketplace because it's going to be very affordable and it's going to give you, it's going to give you the coverage that you need at an affordable price. For the people who are, um, maybe they're still, they've, they've gone into maybe doing something from home, something virtual, they still have an income, they're a higher income earner. When that period is up, I recommend going to check out private insurance first. If you're not going to get a government subsidy, try to get enrolled in private insurance. Again, private insurance is going to have an acceptance or a decline policy, so you could get declined, but for a high income earner, meaning anyone that's going to be 60000 or more, that's going to give you a better monthly rate. So to make it really simple, at the end of that term that you have your short-term policy, look at what you think you will be qualifying for on your taxes for 2020. So when you do taxes at the end of the year, do you think that you're going to be claiming less than 50000 Go check out the marketplace. Get a government subsidy and, let, and go that route from now. If you think that at the end of 2020 you're going to claim more than 50000 check out private insurance first. So. so are you any more clear on any of this? Do you have a little bit of a direction you're going to? Only if I had her on the side. Well, let's <laughs> for me. So we have, we're in an election year, and Joe Biden was partially responsible for Obamacare in the first place. Is he, I know he wants to continue on with that, but he also has some modifications to it. And I know you're not wanting to go political, but given that politics and healthcare kind of go hand in hand most of the time, yeah. where does all of this play out in the next six months, eight months as an election comes around? Healthcare is going to be a massive platform, massive, because Obamacare has unfortunately failed. The, the, ideolo the ideology behind Obamacare was great what it was supposed to do, but it's, that's just not what it did, right? So I think keeping some of the, the Obamacare outline regulations, the, what, we want to, what they wanted to happen from it is fine, but like you said, some serious modifications need to be made. Um, I don't see it personally. My opinion is I don't see Obamacare being just taken off the record. Like I don't think it's going to be gone there's still going to be some remnants of it because, again, to my point earlier, there should never be a time that somebody has declined health care because of a pre-existing condition or because of income purposes, right? So there's a place for it, but the the freedoms, the, the states have taken it and just, you know, ran it into the ground and, and have overdone it. Too many people are utilizing it that shouldn't be utilizing it. Um, so... Uh, it, it's going to be, regardless whether it's Biden or, or anyone else, it's going to be a huge platform. It, this is, healthcare is something that has to change for this country because, like we said earlier, it's not sustainable where it's at right now. So is, is one direction or another more beneficial to you and what you do for your employment situation? Or is it, are you more of, kind, are you more of like uh, Switzerland? You're a neutral party across all of this. Kind of, yeah. So... Um, I personally, what I, I don't offer anything through the marketplace. I don't work with Blue Cross Blue Shield or Aetna or, or any of those guys. Um, I specifically work in the private sector. Um, that was the, but with that being said, I can't insure everyone. So someone with, because uh, I do medically underwrite, so someone with a big pre-existing condition, I'm not going to be able to help. So the marketplace is not really my competition, to be honest with you. Um, because the, the, the people that I'm helping have no business being on the marketplace to begin with, right? They're, they're being charged way too much. They're perfectly healthy. They're, there's just no reason for them to be there. So um, I would like to see there be changes made to the marketplace simply for the country and our, our citizens as a whole. But to answer your question, I do not consider the marketplace, honestly, to be a competitor. So are you, for you personally, your insurance, do you, are you able to self-insure yourself or does somebody else have to insure you? You're no, able to I, I have my own policy. I wrote, I wrote that. Now, 
I mean, my I still went through underwriting. I still was fully medically underwritten, me and my son. And, and so I still had to go through the entire process. But I mean, I so all of my policies are completely customizable from multiple different deductible options to multiple co-insurance options to supplements here, there, and everywhere. And you just piece it together and create this one perfect policy based on what what my specific needs and concerns were. So um, just as using me as an example, I'm perfectly healthy, 32 years old. My son is perfectly healthy, six-year-old son. So for me, a higher deductible on the sickness and disease side made perfect sense because I'm not concerned with critical illness at this point in my life, right? Um, but if something's going to happen to me and my son, we're both very active, it's going to be an accident, falling off the bike or something like that. So I went with a really low accident deductible. Now, because I went high on one side and low on the other, I kept my monthly premium balance. And then I surrounded all of it with supplements to protect any max out-of-pocket or any actual out-of-pocket amount that I may possibly have in the event that there is that big critical illness, that unexpected stroke at age 35 or something. So I have surrounded myself with plenty of supplements that if something did happen, I could pay a high deductible with no concerns. So private insurance is wonderful because you can mix and match based on what it is that you're actually concerned with, where the marketplace, it's a one-size-fits-all. It's like buying a car. Right. I, I totally, like, I would rather just phone you up, honestly, and say, do what you do. <laughs> Take care of me. This is what I need, I think. What do you think? And have you put something together. Like, Well, and that's actually my process, um, is my, my discovery process with the client's about 45 minutes long. I want to hear what you use your insurance for, what you don't use it for, the ins and outs of your medical history, what your concerns are from family history. We're going to do a whole discovery process, and then based on that, I'm going to piece together something that makes sense for you. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I am not interested. People don't need to be overinsured. There's always, oh, overinsure, it's great. Make sure you're protected. You can be protected without being overinsured. There's no point in paying $900 a month for coverage you're never going to use. So to, to your point, yeah, I mean, that, and that's what any health insurance advisor should do is take your specific needs and build a policy on that, not more, not less. So but that's, that's how it should work. So we'll put this on the screen in production, but this is Katie McGee, U.S. Healthcare Advisors. And well, it's U.S. Health Advisors. U.S. Health Advisors. And that is, that's ushealthadvisors.com. This is the name is your company's URL. Yeah. Well, yes, they can get there that way, ushealthadvisors.com. How, how do they reach you directly? Me specifically. Honestly, the best way to get in touch with me um, is social media, to be honest. I have an entire, <laughs> I have an entire website that the company made for me, and it's beautiful and blah blah. But it's a whole bunch of information that you're going to have to read through. When really, just contacting me directly is the easiest way to get the, that information in, you know, <laughs> normal people terms, right? So um, through Facebook, through my Facebook business page, is probably the best way to reach. That's where most people reach me. Which and what's that? Uh, it's going to be Katie McGee, Katie McGee, U.S. Health Advisor. Com. And it's Katie McGee, M M C G -E, e And we'll put this on the screen when we yeah. produce it. Katie, I have a little bit more information. Thank you for taking the time to share it with us. Absolutely. It's very confusing. I stand with you on this. When it comes time to this, I just have to call someone and have them walk me through it. it there's just way too many options. And You know, and, and I, I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, make me, make me earn my money. Like, this is my job is to educate and advise. So let me do my job. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you both. All right. Have a great day, Katie. Yep. Y'all too. Bye-bye. So I don't know if that was um, any more clear for you. Um, we need to do, I want to do, so we can cut this in a minute, but I'm still just as confused, honestly. Are we taking this right No, now? we're still running with it. Okay. So the, 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 the problem that I, and I didn't even, okay. get, to, I didn't even yes. get to ask half the questions that I'm curious about because there's just so many different ways to take it. My general take on this is that the healthcare system in the U.S., and I, this, is, this is coming from a layperson, I don't know a lot about healthcare. I do know that there are trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars every year that are run through the system from pharmaceutical cells, which are most of the time unnecessary, to medical bills, to ballot practice, to the actual insured bills themselves. And it's overwhelming. And, and for someone who has no play in the game 
and trying to decide what's best for me as a consumer, for my kids. Like, it honestly blows my mind away sometimes. Okay, here's what, what I know. Kate is amazing. Like, oh my gosh, because you need someone like her to navigate your way through because it is, it is confusing like that. And me moving here from Canada and didn't have insurance, I had, and I think I told you this, I had some basal cell on my face. I needed to get an ointment for it. Went to the pharmacy to pick up that ointment. It was $600 for this tube of ointment. Told them I didn't have insurance. They're like, oh, that's $60. So is that a commonality throughout the insurance and everything when doctors are billing all these things that they have to pad certain things so that... And you, it all it, works out. Like it, and when she was saying the COVID billing and all of that, like there's, there's definitely, and, and she's very, very clear on saying the premise behind Obamacare was fantastic. It's not working out. It needs to be improved. Yeah, and you didn't even go into the area on your, you talked about your pharmaceutical, I mean your, uh, your pharmacy bill for the medicine. And, and then there's a whole other industry of generic medicine because people can't afford the primary medicine, which I don't really understand if it's the exact same thing. Why is it different? But, but are you not paying for the, the science that goes behind developing all of this? That's why you're paying more as well so that they can take, or is it the pharmacy? I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Is, I don't know. Uh, so a lot of times you end up taking generic medicines anyway. So if they have no efficacy, why, why, why are we taking them? Are they, are they just a placebo? That's a whole other conversation. I slightly have, I mean, I understand the general umbrella of healthcare insurance, and Katie was great in explaining, you know, the different variations of it. Uh, it's, it's scary to me how... How do you navigate through it without someone like her? But it, yes. What you need, what you don't need, what can you afford? Yes, but where I was going with this is not to be a harbinger of death. It's really scary to me... No, but it's really scary to me given the fragility of the healthcare system in of itself, the amount of people who don't have health care or access to health care. And now you have a new looming crisis of Corona, call it real or not real. There are still people that are using healthcare services and, and it's overburdening the system. What I really wanted to get to in that conversation is where is this going to go and what implications does it have? Because that's the part that I think scares me the most. And I don't even know how you would have, who would you even bring on an economist to have a discussion about that? Amala, we need to find somebody who has some really good knowledge around the healthcare system, the economy, and the correlation of the two and how they go hand in hand. Oh, God. You're going down a rabbit hole now. Well, here's the funny thing. I, I know we're not supposed to be talking about this for this topic, but we are in a political year. But how much political campaigning have you actually heard about? There's nothing going on right now, and it's six months away from the election of the next president. So are we going to pick our political leader the same as you were talking about picking, <laughs> picking your insurance? I think it. I what, th it what's being marketed the best? What am I? Okay, that's a pretty picture. Done. Isn't that how the last president got elected? And the one before that? And the one before that? I think that's basically the game. Who has the shiniest, prettiest truck? And who gets heard the most? I don't know that a lot of people are typically informed on politics or insurance for that matter. Case in point. I don't know that most Is people. It made confusing for a reason. I think that it's made confusing for a reason, and I. It's made confusing for a reason, and it keeps you tied to the system. So you have to use the system, and if you don't use the system, then you're pushed out, and you don't have any opportunities. And I think that's the whole point. That's why we're entrepreneurs. You do get tax for being an entrepreneur. You're penalized as well. <laughs> you're self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which segues to the next conversation. We should all just start taking psychedelics. And next week, you like how I did that? Next week we have who? Dan. Dan the man coming back on. And Floris, who is his partner in crime for all things psychedelics. We're going to be talking about mushrooms. We're going to be talking about all sorts of things next week. Well, you're educating yourself even more. You're reading a big book. 
Oh my god, it's fantastic though. All about that before. I, I wish I had it. I wanted something like I know what I'm talking about next week on the podcast. So I bought a really good book on psychedelics. You're just gonna highlight certain things and just kind of work them out like I'm just gonna hold it down right here and read it. <laughs> I like that. I'm just gonna read it each line and make it sound I'm like it's my own language. I'm just gonna hey, Lisa, look ask this question next. That's why I use efficacy in every third <laughs> sentence. <laughs> All right. Interesting. Uh, you know, again, call it what it is. Insurance isn't the most scintillating topic, and it probably won't. It, it probably she made it the most interesting. I've met a lot of insurance agents. She made it most interesting and clarified it the most that anyone ever has. Absolutely. So but I don't want to deal with it. I want to call her up and have her take care of it. So she's Katie McGee, U.S. Health Advisors. You can find her on Facebook at Katie McGee, U.S. Health Advisor. I'll put all this information on the screen and in the bottom of the YouTube channel. But thank you. Good questions. I like where you're going today. Curious about the Canadian stuff. I should, I should know more about healthcare. I don't. It's probably something I should probably read about. Get myself educated on it. Okay. Thank you. Have a great day.